What's happening, weirdos? Hannah Gadsby. I was very, very excited for this. Thank you to Mike Birbiglia, who put us in touch. Um, I am a fan. I was excited and um, sort of like ready ready to figure things out, meaning Hannah is so smart and so conscious. And um, you'll see even in the episode, there's a moment where we sort of, I sort of have like a click moment where I'm like, oh, that's the other side of a bit I was doing. And it's so interesting. It's, I think I've mentioned it a few times on episodes since then. All of that is to say, this is a great conversation and one that has stuck with me. And I really, really hope you enjoy it. Check out Douglas, her uh, special on Netflix, and um, and the other one, of course, is Nanette. Um, but they're both wonderful, and I encourage you to check them out. Uh, I also want to give a shout. It's the holiday season. People are getting gifts and such. I would recommend getting something from our friends at Living Libations. Li- Why did I sound like Paul F. Tompkins? Living Libations. Because he's hilarious. I am mindful, and I always have tried to be mindful about what I put in my body, But a few years ago, I realized I wasn't being careful about what I put on my body, which of course ends up in your body. Your skin absorbs what you put on it and it gets into your system. And it's very uh, exciting for me to have discovered Living Libations because before them, I was buying shaving cream and face washes that were like high end, that were supposed to be fancy because they had like French names and and were in in exclusive freestanding stores and outdoor malls. But of course, just because they're fancy and expensive and have French names doesn't mean they're not loaded with chemicals that have been linked to disease and toxicity, always hard to say, toxicity levels that just weren't intended for human beings. So enter Living Libations, high-end, yet affordable, wonderful, real deal, powerful, effective skin care, face care, dental care. Um, They have something, they have a, 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 a natural and ingredients that you can recognize alternative to whatever it is you're using to clean, groom, or beautify your body. Um, What I love personally, you'll see when you go to the site, they have everything for everybody. So if you want to support the show and just get like a little something, Living Libations is a great place to go. I started with the Ginger Exfoliating Scrub. Not only is it made with ingredients that I recognize and has that wonderful natural feel, but it's the most badass exfoliating scrub I've gotten. I would put it against the one I was getting at CVS, 10 to 1. It, it does the job. I use it before I shave. makes a huge difference. That's a real pro tip. If you exfoliate before you shave, makes a huge difference. It's made with plants, oils, and extracts that I recognize as real and natural, and it works. It's wonderful. Speaking of shaving, I shave with their Zen Shave Cream, which is so clean and natural and moisturizing, you can actually use a dab of it as aftershave. It's not some anonymous neon blue goo shot out from a pressurized can. And then at night, I put on their Best Skin Ever Moisturizer, which smells great, feels great, and gets your skin looking great. I I put that on before bed. So I assure you, whatever your skin needs, your face, your body, your eyes, your teeth, even baby products, Living Living Libations has a premium natural and wonderful product to replace the random chemical nightmare they sell at 7-Eleven. So do yourself a treat or get your friend or loved one a wonderful gift. Go to livinglibations.com and use promo code WEIRD at checkout. You'll get 20% off. 20! livinglibations.com, WEIRD, 20% off. And show your support of this show. Speaking of support, Raising Leela, we have enjoyed the support of Hello Bello. Hello Bello 
delivers our bundles of diapers and wipes to our door directly and automatically. Co-founded by our friends Kristen Bell and Dak Shepard, Hello Bello is built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. Uh, For everybody with a baby out there, you know it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. And you want to take one thing off of your mind without spending a fortune, but with good, wonderful, premium products. Uh, If you have a blowout, which if you're uh, a parent, you know what a blowout is. If you're not, you you can guess. It's when the poop, uh, the cup overfloweth. I've been in that situation. We've opened up the hatchback to our car, laid Leela out, and we've been so grateful that Hello Bello has us covered. They can lighten the load, <laughs> literally, and on your bank account, all while keeping your baby comfy and dry. They offer uh, what we do is a diaper bundle service that lets you choose over 20 different fun rotating designs, which sounds maybe arbitrary, but it's not. At night, we ask Leela what kind, what shape, what pattern she wants to wear. She chooses one, and that makes it easier to get her in the diaper. Uh, They give you seven packs of diapers in every bundle, four packs of plant-based wipes, and even a full-size product freebie with your first order. So this is a no-brainer. You need diapers. You always need diapers, uh, and you're going to need more diapers and wipes. And why not get it from an incredible company that I trust and support by going to HelloBello, H-E-L-L-O-B-E-L-L-O dot com slash weird. Build your bundle, and HelloBello will send you diapers on a cadence that works for you. Plus, the shipping is free, and you can cancel anytime. No gotchas. Get their super soft, super absorbent, super absorbent, and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door from Hello Bello. Go to hellobello.com slash weird for 25% off your diaper bundle order. That's a huge bang for your buck with a lot of potential blowouts saved. That's hellobello.com slash weird. Show your support of the show and start bundling with 25% off. Plus, get 15% off any add-ons like vitamins or additional wipes. Don't forget, that's hellobello.com slash weird weird and show your support of the show of the show our final pete's pick is our friends at brooklinen an incredible way to support this show and show your appreciation for the show and also show your appreciation for your body i am serious about sleep and a few years ago we realized why are we looking forward to uh, like a night in a hotel that isn't coming by the way we're not traveling we're not doing anything We look forward to hotels because the sheets are so nice, you know, and I was waking up not feeling great about my, about my holy sort of stained and weird uh, sheets. That sounded sexual. I just mean not very uh, attractive looking. (laughs) And if you don't love your sheets, Brooklinen has you covered. You have to wake up and uh, upgrade. And I got a great feeling of being a grown ass person being like, I want my sheets to be premium and high-end without spending an arm on and, and a leg, or an arm on a leg, as they say in badly translated foreign movies. So, Brooklinen was started by Rich and Vicky, who also were trying to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost way, 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 way too much. And when they couldn't, they founded Brooklinen, the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with the manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you, without the luxury level markup. So they're removing that middleman and selling right to you. 
They have a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and whatever size your bed is. Brooklinen is so confident you will love their products. They even give you 365-day money-back guarantee. That's one American year. 365 days plus. Brooklinen's biggest sale of the year is coming up. If you're hearing this when it came out, uh, they got some great um, Black Friday things. So go to Brooklinen. I'm going to get into I, I'm, I'm laughing at myself for saying Black Friday things. What you can do is go to brooklinen.com and check out their entire selection of bedding, towels, loungewear, and more. They've even got candles, silk eye masks, which are dope, robes, and uh, plenty to give your picky aunt a spa day at home. So they make wonderful gifts. There's also the trusty gift card if you don't know what your picky aunt will like, and Brooklinen has those as well. These are incredible sheets. Like I said, they give, give us like a five-star hotel experience at home and they don't cost a fortune, and I love it. So the sale starts November 18th, uh, so I believe that means it's happening now. Yeah, it's happening now. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code WEIRD to get 10% off your first order and free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter promo code WEIRD for 10% off plus free shipping. brooklinen.com, you know it by now, promo code WEIRD at checkout, and show your support of this always free show. I, I always, I don't mean to sound uh, sweaty or anything, but it does mean a lot. If you guys like this episode, if you like other episodes, you like the show in general, uh, just get yourself something. Get yourself, get, 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 get yourself something nice and show your support. Or, hey, just coast on through and listen to Hannah Gatsby. But I think you know what is more in the holiday spirit of generosity and giving and fun. So do yourself a favor, get yourself a pizza pick. In the meantime, let's enjoy the wonderful Hannah Gadsby. Get uh, into it. Purple. Yes, she is. <laughs> Hi, Hannah. You can't hear me yet. Hi. Yeah, uh, there you are. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I, is your shirt purple? Because I said purple, and I don't even know if it is purple because I'm colorblind. Oh, right. It's blue. It's blue, it's, but there is because of its... Um, the pattern. It's it's because it's a, a check, as they say. Um, yeah. it, when it crosses over through some of the other blues, it becomes purple. So you know it's what? A, That's it's a, a magic very, trick. Thank you. That's a loving way to say I'm not wrong. It's just only in parts is it purple. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your truth is patchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm so happy to meet you. I know it's over. Nice Zoom. to meet what you a, too. What a miracle to be talking to you literally across the world here. With video, yeah. we're living in the Jetsons. Yeah. I'm feeling yeah. pretty special about it. I, I've been watching your stuff in preparation and, and just my heart is open and crying. I'm such a fan. I, I think you're incredible. So I'm excited to talk with you. Thank you very much. Yeah. How are you getting on in this? Is, uh, that's my first area. I'm in quarantine right now. I was just talking to Jenny. So I've been alone for five days. Oh, but, how's that going for you? Thank you for asking. It's actually getting a little bit easier. Um, I have to say in Nanette, one of the things that I really related to was that you say you're a quiet gay. Um, I, I am a straight man, but when I would go to gay pride parades, I would have the same observation. I was like, if I was gay, where are my gays? You know what I mean? Where are the teacup, quiet night at home people? And then it occurred to me that maybe you were enjoying this as I, as I sort of am in part. Yeah, I am. It, with With a lot of reservations, you know, for what is happening in the world. Um, yeah. 
you know, I'm able to separate the two. Um, but uh, it is, um, I am enjoying the social anxiety, anxiety is nil now because there's no, like drawing boundaries, I don't have to draw the boundaries. They've been mandated. That's right. Um, whereas, you don't have you know, to feign interest either. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's I can't feign interest. So what my life, <laughs> um, what my life was usually made up of was doing the cleanup after my lack of ability to feign interest. <laughs> So it's I mean, like, that's, you've made a career out of your lack of ability to feign interest. How mm, lovely. Yeah. yeah. So um, then I have to clean up because I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but also I can't pretend to care about some things. Yes. Um, but the social anxiety has just, I have not had this low level of, of, of anxiety since I can remember um, and also stability and routine, which I all, I really love. Like I love routine, but you know, comedy being what it is, you don't get routine. You get, don't get to have routine. Um, That's right. So I've been enjoying that and gardening. Like, Is I, that right? Do you garden? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's lovely. I, I've, I've talked to many guests that garden and they all say that it's all there, all the lessons you need, all the wisdom from the earth. I'm not even exaggerating. They seem to see the cycles and they get a lot of messages from their garden. Do you feel that way? I know that's a leading question, but. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, my, Welcome my grandma, to the show. <laughs> thank you. My grandma always said, uh, it's not the garden. Uh, it's not the garden. It's the gardening. Yeah. So it's, um, and it, it, you know, the garden's quite forgiving. Like you, you know, it gives you the lessons. It's like, if, and if you have to watch the plants, you know, they'll tell you before they die that they're dying mm. and you, mm. you have time to, to, to help them and save them. And, mm. um, and then and, isn't and, even the dead plant sort of useful? Doesn't that then become oh yeah, sort of the, mulch. the mulch, mulch for the next, I mean, we've seemed you to have lost that from our yeah. mythology. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The cycle yeah. of life, I suppose. Yeah. But that, I, I wondered when, you know, in your in Douglas coming out as Aspie, it's not the garden, it's the gardening. It's not comedy, it's doing comedy. You know, it reminds me, I have not been diagnosed, but I feel like I have some um, Aspie leanings, as a lot of comedians do. Yet, um, like the guy in Free Solo, when I'm doing stand-up and when I watch you doing stand-up, I'm not seeing an ounce. I'm seeing confidence. I'm seeing expression. I'm seeing performance. I'm seeing complete clarity over what they're saying, the nuance of what the audience is saying. I wonder if that, how does that feel? The gardening of doing stand-up, does that snap you into a heightened state that's more comfortable, I imagine? Yeah, the boundaries, are, again, are very set in a stand-up. In stand so um, when, I'm, when I'm doing, it's not being social, you know, there's not a there's no input happening in that moment. All the inputs taken from other times where I've had time to think about things and re reshape them, and then I just sort of get to perform and and shape it and gift it, if you want to call it that, to the audience. Um, but I'm not taking anything nuanced back from the audience. There's the vibe, there's the audience energy, which then I then have to, you know, there's there's I don't tend to change my routine a lot once I've sort of bedded it in, but 
there are a lot of different ways that you can change the way you perform a piece to suit an audience. It, it has, you know, with rhythm, tempo, emphasis changes, depending on, you know, if, a, if an audience is up, you get up with it. If they're down, then, you know, you don't want to hammer them with the same energy you hammer a live, you know, a lively audience. So, mm-hmm. but it's, um, that's not the same as having a conversation. I find having a conversation with someone much more difficult. Me too. <laughs> uh, one of the, I like podcasts are different because there's a performative element because it's being recorded and we sort of know the stakes. You know how long it's going to be. You, you might know about the tone or whatever. It sort of takes some of that ambiguity out of me. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy watching real people have conversations. Um uh, there's a point at which you become creepy, the creepy third wheel. But I do, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't hate. I am quite social, but it's exhausting. So I like I uh, just observe other people being social, and I I find that quite delightful. And I feel like I've participated in every moment of a of a conversation that I haven't actually spoken in. Wow. Um, but as soon as and I found as my sort of fame level increased, the less able I am to just observe a conversation because, you know, people just, like, entertain me or drive this conversation, and that's not where I'm very comfortable. I completely understand. Has that been a challenge? I I mean, I I say it all the time. People laugh. It's a Sinbad quote. He says that comedians are funnier when they're riding the bus. Obviously, your sex and special is brilliant, so I'm not challenging your humor level. You've maintained that. But the ease with which you can blend into a party and observe, I mean, that is sort of your job. Well, I've got a lifetime to draw from. So, you know, I came to comedy reasonably late in my life. I do feel sorry for for, you know, kids who find comedy and then a certain amount of stardom and then they're just like, ugh. Um, because the, you know, what they're drawing from is not, not a broad experience. And I Mm -hmm. think to a certain extent that, that fame and sudden fame is akin to trauma. Um, it's, (laughs) of course, it's not bad. It's been painted a new color. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily bad, you know, and, and you have more like certainly more tools at your disposable disposal and, um, but there is something traumatic about the shift in circumstance that I felt after Nanette that made me just want to withdraw from the world. I mean, it's not what you were after. I think that's what makes your work so special. And I know uh, Douglas was your 10th special. So clearly you're somebody who's doing it because you enjoy it. It's what you're good at. It's written on your bones to do it. And the comedians that I know that do it for money or power or um, fame, fame being probably the worst of those, well, maybe power, but fame being a bad one, um, they never make it. So it is hoisted upon you. Don't you, do you think they don't make it? Well, that's, that's a, you're good to point that out. I don't know if I agree with me there. I, let's put it this way. I tend to not enjoy those comedians. There's a, I, there's a certain kind of co- comedian that I'm really fascinated with and that they're not funny at all, but they're successful. Mm. And it's not like I don't, I don't come out of going, you know, I hate them because they're successful. I'm just confused because I'm like, you know, because I look at things and I'm like I break down what they say and I'm like it's, it's not funny or interesting what's happening here. And yeah. it's the the rhythm of which they say it and the energy they bring to the table. Like they bring this energy and that's part 
of it. I had to learn the energy part. I could slice and dice and be as clinical as you like with 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 comedy, and I could get that to the table. But I had to really learn how to modulate my voice. That's one um, of the first things I noticed. I'm so glad you brought it up. I wanted to ask you how you learned. Again, not to assume uh, as somebody on the spectrum that you can't do that, but that is one of the first things you look for. Um, I don't know, maybe you don't look for it, but like the inability to modulate and perform and emote. And when I watch you, it's off the charts. You're doing it like crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's probably a little too off the charts. Um, (laughs) Not my charts are very mild. (laughs) You want to be off my charts. (laughs) But it's the, um, the, if you happen upon early my early performances i am a i am deadpan i used to get reviews like hannah gadsby is dull and listless and um (laughs) (laughs) and i could be very much so particularly my early career i did something like the edinburgh fringe and that's a really overwhelming experience so i'd be okay in the first few days of the festival and then I get exhausted because it's a stimulus yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And and then so then a couple of weeks in, I would be dull and listless because I was just locking down. Um, it's the only place just, you could go, yeah, was yeah, inside. I didn't understand how to protect myself or why because I was undiagnosed. Mm. Um, so, you know, also there's a thing called masking and, and girls on the spectrum particularly do that because girls are ex- – there's a lot more – expected of girls uh, particularly of you know my age when we're growing up um you know there's a certain standard we're held to about being social and uh girls on the spectrum observe the behaviors of those around it and mimic so whereas boys on the spectrum we're allowed to you know you know, have specialist knowledge and be a little bit antisocial and it's like they're just boys you know that's what boys do but girls doing that it, it, it's not like you need a special set of circumstances and family to let you do that. Well, we, we even had, the, you make the point, angel and whore. We talk about that a lot on the show, the archetypes, the character choices. And I'm thinking about growing up, even in the 80s and 90s, we had Stephen Wright comes to mind. You know, the, the idea of a droll dead, I have people in my family that are on the spectrum and yeah. they we were we would have something to go, well, he's sort of like that guy. You know yeah. what I mean? But I can't, I, I don't really know that many deadpan or droll or whatever it might be. You said antisocial role models or character choices for women to model. Yeah, I would be that if I was male. Like if I was, yeah. like that's where I would have got to. Um, mm. uh, but, you know, and often what is I'm experiencing as passion people receive it as anger. Um, I'm I'm often called an angry comedian and I'm just not angry. I'm curious, flustered, you know, like this, I'm angry at the world, but I'm not, I don't really, I really let go of anger quite easily because as soon as something doesn't make sense or is exhausting, I'm just like, well, off you pop. Right. Um, So part of the way people read me, I think, is to do with, you know, I probably express it incorrectly to neurotypical eyes mm. um, and also then lay it on top of that is how people like to put down public facing women or women with a with a with a platform it's like if you, you know passion is always sort of if you don't like what a woman is saying then you but you can't 
necessarily fault it. You fault how they say it. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's sort of a, a double whammy. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, maybe that, I mean, it sounds very much like that was, well, you said it, if you were a man, you could have become that choice, but it was yeah, sort of blocked. Yeah, sort of like if I, was, if I did Stephen Wright type comedy, which I loved, and I, you know, would impersonate him till the cows came home, um, yeah. and they came home twice a day for milking, um, <laughs> uh, I would be classed as being um, stupid. You know, you know, like, you know, that's, you know, a little bit sort of soft in the head, so to speak. There's that dollop um, of understanding given to, to boys. I completely, I, I've seen that as well, of course. Yeah. And, that, you know, when I first started doing comedy, it was a bit of a gift to be off-putting, you know, because it gave me an edge. When I, As soon as I walk on stage, I was so outside the bounds of what people expected from me that it gave me that, like, pause to establish mm. myself, um, you know, like, you know, as a, as a as a bigger woman, I'm supposed to be jolly. As a Tasmanian in Australia, I was supposed to be stupid. Uh, as a lesbian, I was supposed to be angry. But I was just this sort of confused blob. Mm. And and people were like, well, we don't know quite how to respond to that. So that gave me room, you know, and it's really important when you're first starting comedy is to have that disarming quality so then you can establish yourself instead of having people stereotypes of you but that became Mm. a straitjacket after a while because I couldn't talk unless I you know there's no way I could talk about the spice rack Mm. and and you know with if I didn't then make some sort of like help the audience adjust to my sexuality my look my voice you know all these sorts of uh, things that are are not typical Mm. of me um uh so um there's a aspect of me that's furious about that because i would like to just tell you about the personalities of different spices and herbs Mm. that perhaps you grow in your garden (laughs) yeah yeah so i think you know that's the one thing success is you know going to probably afford me, but I have to fight against the the piece of work in a way that established me without undermining it. So it's sort of like, yes, Nanette gave me this platform, but I'm not going to use that platform to do Nanette 2, Nanette 3, Nanette 4. Right. Um, You're not the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> I'm not either. If I am, I'm, if I'm, mas- if I am, yeah. I'm masking. <laughs> Men tend to call you furious for some reason, but fast. I mean, I nobody, don't know. Nope. nobody has ever. ever me. No comedian and has ever called me fast either. In um, Douglas, it's a really dense show, and I have a lot of energy on stage, um, and that's simply because I had an hour and a half show, and Netflix being Netflix, going people turn off, don't give them off ramps. Mm. And it's sort of a really tightly woven show. So you take out one piece, another piece crumbles later on in the show. <laughs> so you can't just take chunks out. So I thought, I'll just talk fast. And that's what happened. And that's sort of um, you know, how I developed my signature, you know. Wow. Just writing so you, my name fast. Were you, 
<laughs> literally your signature. <laughs> so you weren't joking when you said you had to cut parts of the show out to fit in the explanation of what was to yeah. come. I think that is hilarious. <laughs> and I can't believe somebody of your stature with Nanette still was in the confines of you can't do a 90 minute special. That's, that's I think that's cool. wonderful. Like I think, you know, success comes, you know, with a lack of edit. Like I think the show's, you know, it was bigger and better in my mind, but I think for an audience, you know, you don't want someone rambling for 90 yeah. minutes. You know, and I, I think I think, you know, having an edit function external to you is 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 you know i respect um people who come back from notes i'll you know i'll i'll think about all notes Mm. um and if they don't make sense then i'm quite happy to stand my ground but you know i Mm. don't know what the viewing habits are um i personally don't watch all of a comedy show myself so you know that made sense um I mean, and Douglas was a particular show that that made sense for. You know, it was rapid fire, but you know mm-hmm. something. They took a real risk on the net, so I think there was mutual respect. Hmm. I love that. I love yeah. I, you know humility gets a bad rap. I think sometimes comedians can believe their own hype to their detriment, and and, and there is something to be said. Like it is called data, right? You don't want your art sculpted by the data chisel, but at the same time, the data can be leaned into it, it's like people if you ever have to do a clean set or something and you end up writing some brilliant stuff because of the restriction oh i i live life because of restriction i only wear blue for instance because it's um it's a, both a restriction and uh gives scope for play like because there's a lot of different blues but mm. i don't have to get stressed about choice particularly not so much in the morning getting dressed but when i'm buying clothes or like having to come up with an idea of how I look. It's just like, it's easy now. you know, I think that's brilliant. You figured out the way that your brain plays. It likes to play and it plays better with restrictions than just with wild freedom. Yeah. And, and for me, it was like, um, as someone on the spectrum, having someone on the outside saying this doesn't necessarily work you know, is is a conversation I've always had, you know, I've always had to adjust the way that I communicate in order to be um, understood. Mm. Um, You know, the point is to be able to communicate. It's not, you know, the object, you know, Mm. so, you know, I see my stand-up as, you know, the point of it is being able to, you know, share communicate, take what's inside me and share it with the outside world. And, you know, taking, taking feedback is critical to that. And that's before it even gets to Netflix, it's already gone through a whole process of that because audiences tell you, they tell you in their own way what works, yeah. what doesn't. We're in the feedback um, business. That's mm-hmm. what we do. <laughs> and that's, that's essentially why I'm able to be quite easily humble about my success because I didn't expect Nanette to work. Like it was written as a show was like, you know what, I'm just going to put this on the table and people aren't going to like it because I've been observing what they like in comedy and this, this is not it. And, um, but I do, also like to, I do also like to call bullshit and I had to write that show because I didn't understand what people wanted from me or what I had to say and I was recently diagnosed. So I'm like I have to shake things up because I, you know, had an audience. So I wrote this show and expecting it, half hoping for it to backfire and I'd have to take a 
you know, a back seat on, on my career because, you know, I was exhausted from travel and um, now I understood why. Mm. Um, and so I wrote that show expecting it to fail and it did not. And so what that says to me is like, I don't necessarily understand what audiences want. And the success of Nanette was not just down to what I created, but the audience. Like yeah. the audience was what made that show successful without the audience. No, no, that would not have made it onto Netflix if the audiences hadn't said, uh, you know, during the live performance of it, had it, you know, lit a fire uh, right. uh, on its life. Um, that's, that's right. In its life. So it's the, you know, when, when comics and they're getting less shy about um, telling me that, you know, that Nanette was rubbish and because it's not comedy, um, it's hard to sort of take them seriously because it's like you're ignoring that the audience is also involved in deciding what they want. Right. I feel like those same comedians, if would use the opposite logic in their own defense. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're overlooking the fact that you have your case study in front of you, which is your audience, and you do it hundreds of times. I, I'm not really up to speed on that. I, I wasn't, I maybe, I don't want to be naive. I assume a show like that would get haters, but I didn't know people were just flat out telling you that's not comedy. Yeah, they're not telling me. They're not, they're not that brave, but like, I think people <laughs> think that nobody talks to me. Um, which I do get that impression. <laughs> One of my questions, Hannah, is friends? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm watching Friends, the show. Are you really? You're binging Friends? Yes, I am. I missed out on that part. When I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to watch American television. Oh, wow. Um, my mum didn't like it. She didn't like it because oh, some shows she did, but generally speaking it was British crime dramas, oh, wow. not, not American comedy. Mm. So and that, now you're that, catching up. Well, no, the reason I find it interesting, the reason mum didn't like American comedies is because of the canned laughter. She gets so furious. She said, that's not funny. Yeah. She said, I don't need someone to tell me when to laugh. And you do have a really different experience if you watch something without the prompt of laughter. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's kind of fine. But I don't mind friends. There is a, a lot of, you know, harumph around the fact that it's homophobic and I'm not seeing that and I'm quite attuned to homophobia. There are homophobic characters but their attitudes are not celebrated. Mm. And I, I think that's a, it's of its time, what wasn't homophobic back then. Um, mm. So, you know, like but you know, that's I'm, I'm an older audience so that's not necessarily relevant to yeah. a younger audience. I'm not going to say, young people, you must like the show. Um, why would you? The, the, the slacks are terrible. Um, <laughs> I find a comfort in those 90s shows. I wonder if you're the same. Nostalgia. Nostalgia is... Uh, well, There's something I, hypnotic, too, about the pace and the sets and the color palette, all of that. Well, I think it's, so- if you experienced it back in the day, it's going to be comforting if it's if you didn't. You know, if you're a younger audience, you, there's less chance of you finding comfort in it. Like this right. nostalgia is a really, really powerful thing. And but I come from a tricky place because I didn't experience it at the time. Mm. Um, because I, you know, we weren't allowed to watch American. And once I left home, I I was never in a position where 
I had a television. I'm not one of those people like I didn't watch television. I, I didn't have a television. I couldn't afford it. I would have watched it if I had one. Yeah. <laughs> I would have yeah. loved to watch one. Yeah. And so I go, you know, there were those share houses that I was in. There was television and I got, you know, I watched what they watched. But I, until just pretty much this pandemic, mm. um, I've got a television that I'm mostly in charge of the remote. Hey. Um, and it's fine. Like I've never felt bitter about that. I and, mean, you know, it's like, I work well with restrictions, so having someone else choose what I watch is fine. Right. Um, it's like watching other people's conversations. You pick mm, up on, hey, what are people watching? Yeah. Um, but what I found really fun with friends is that because I've spent my whole life just observing and following patterns and um, I'm really good at predicting what line's coming next. Oh, my God. Can I tell you my uh, game my show idea? Power. Yeah. My game, you'd be great at it. We watch a show like Friends. Uh, Chandler's got his. Uh, well, no, who's the who's the dumb one? Jo- um, not Joey. Is it Joey? Joey's the dumb one. Well, so jo- I mean, it depends what you call dumb. <laughs> if you're going to ask me, it's Ross. Ross is the dumbest of the dumb dumbs. Okay, it's Ross then. Ross has his face covered in <laughs> chocolate cake. Rachel comes in. He looks up. He's caught. It was Rachel's birthday cake. And then we pause it. And then we go to our panel of comedians for them to guess and get one point or beat it and get two points. <laughs> I feel like you would be good at that game. Yeah. Right? Yep. Because you know, I mean, that we know the music. When I watch your stand-up, you know the music of, of comedy. The problem with my, if it's in that context, I wouldn't do so well. If I'm with a panel of comedians and we're competing for the funniest line, it's like I tend not to because I, I sort of go, oh, you've got the comedy covered. I can sit back. Like I'm just right. not competitive. Like I'm, it's it's a real flaw. So, I don't think that's um, a flaw. I think that's, I think that's lovely. But if I was on a, a panel of people taking it seriously, yeah, I would take it seriously and be funny. Oh, I'm sorry. I see. You're making a distinction. If if we're just competing as comedians, what, what's the difference between competing and taking it seriously? Well, because my comedy comes from a misinterpretation of the world around me. Mm. And when I try to be funny, I'm less funny mm. because, you know, there's a gap. Often I, ca- I catch up quickly and then I realize, oh, that's funny. That's a joke. I realized how I've made a mistake. Yes. Um. Whereas, so, but whereas I'm like, and I think it's funny because there's something endearing about that. But if I'm just like, I'm trying to be funny, I'm trying to be funny, then I, it's, I can do it, but it seems hollow. Whereas if I'm, where I'm coming from is, is trying to be genuine. Like I'm genuinely trying to be a good person and I'm genuinely trying to do the right thing. I inevitably make mistakes and offend people. But I don't have to try to do that. And I think I, like, I completely relate. So much of where I get premises from is from something I did in earnest that was misunderstood. Mm. And, it, and this is why one of the things that I found to ask me about myself was taking things too literally. I would oh, often take yeah. things way too literally. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really funny to me now because, uh, you know, I've got enough. And I think one of the the bad things about the representation of people on the spectrum and why a lot of people don't believe they're on the spectrum, you know, they don't recognise themselves in the stereotypes, is 
that what's often missed in the observation of it from neurotypical people is the the humor and you know like most uh, and i'm talking about people on on the part of the spectrum where you know we have the capacity to be verbal um but i i do have a friend who's got a child on the spectrum who's non-verbal but he's funny mm. like but you mm. just have to you have to find you know the the language have you um, seen asperger's or us the doc um no I believe- I think it was on Netflix. I'm sorry if if you if I interrupted. I, I was just oh. going to say it's an improv team or a sketch team, and they all are on the spectrum. Oh no, I haven't. I haven't watched that. I'll have to have it's, a look. It's That's a cool. Hoot. It's really really funny. It's really great. But so, you see what you're talking about. So you're saying you, you child so this, with humor. Yeah. So the, but the like for me like and most people on the spectrum like there's a there's a moment where we don't get things, and that's where people t- seem to freeze us, and then there's pity. But if you just wait a couple of moments, then we're just like, oh, oh, no, I missed the point there. Yes. But, and also what happens in that moment where we've missed the point and then we go back over the moment and try and make sense of it, we come up with all the meanings and all the angles and that's a lot of where comedy comes from. That's it's, right. It's Every creative hindsight. Yes, yes. Creative hindsight. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a, we need to rewrite, you know, because most most stories about you know people on spectrum are tinged with with sort of tragedy, but you know the the, the capacity for humor is quite disarming. Yes, um, you just have to keep the tape playing. I mean, it's sort of the point you make in Nanette. It's like tell the whole story, pick pick where you're going to extract the meaning. And you're yeah. right. I mean, when I look at movies like. Revenge of the Nerds or whatever. I'm like, Revenge of the Kids with Asperger's? Is, is, that, is that what's happening right now? Like, that was us. You or and a me. recipe for incels. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> exactly. I, that was us in the 80s. That's what we saw in the 80s and even into the 90s. And now it's so beautiful to have more and more examples. That's why it really meant a lot to me when Jerry Seinfeld said that he felt like he was on the spectrum. He later took it back. But I was thinking of him earlier. <laughs> Kept the tape playing. <laughs> yeah, he Why played it Why did he take it back? Did he get sort of people saying, you can't just do yeah, that? I, I think he might have gotten some flack. I mean, at that level, yeah, maybe no, people. I mean, he's, uh, the, you know, he can buy a thousand cars. He can get himself a, a diagnosis and, and, and get into this properly. You know what I mean? Like, come on, come on. <laughs> you have a doctor that'll come to your house. No problem. Yes. Yeah, right. Get Get your... Get your diagnosis and speak to it. Like it's it's actually baffling that he won't because he clearly is. Like yeah. there's no doubt in my mind that he that he is on the spectrum. Yeah, um, well, I recognize it in the way that he thinks. Again, I'm not diagnosed either. I, I I'd I'd be interested to look into that. But I thought there's a there's a there's a there's a point at which being diagnosed is is, is incredibly difficult. And I I got lucky in in many ways, and I was quite dogged about it. Um, because I, I and also because I'd been misdiagnosed. I. I think if you experience, as I did, there's, like, life was difficult, like, because I had, I am on the spectrum. Like, there are people who are high-functioning, as as it's called, that, you know, there's a line at which you're high-functioning but you live a poor life because every bit of your function goes into merely existing. Like, it's treading Mm. water and it's, you know, and... So I, 
I wouldn't call myself high functioning because this is quite a large part of my life that I am unable to navigate, you know. Mm. Um, That's a good special title, Hannah Gadsby, functioning. functioning. (laughs) Let's not not call it high. Let's not. I'm functioning. And I I, I sort of think there's a really interesting space in comedy, you know, because often this is put down to gender. And mm. when you when you think that there's a lot of comedians on the spectrum or given the spectrum a nudge, we'll call it, but they're straight men and they're experiencing it and they, it becomes this dialogue about ah, women with their frilly intuitive feelings. Mm. Um, and I look at that and I, and I go, no woman on the spectrum behaves the way that these men describe. You mean they don't and blame, I know, they don't blame Yeah, them. and I know plenty of men who have these feelings I don't understand. Mm. Mm. Like, and, you know, they get angry about stuff. I'm just like, why are you angry? It doesn't make actual sense. Yeah. What you're talking about is not like, and I, I think that I think, honestly, I think we'd have a much more interesting dialogue if we didn't do the difference between men and women and we did the difference between neurotypicals and, and, and more atypical folk because, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of, uh, you know, the difference between men and women has shaped the way we view men and women. Like that joke has yeah. shaped our, gen- you know, in popular culture. Like the, mm-hmm. the taglines of so many jokes is like women. And what it should be is like people with emotions. Um, right. And, and <laughs> right, which is not exclusive to women, of course. And it's yeah. also because, the, you know, they get to drive the conversation, it looks less than. Because they're mm. the ones with the microphone. They're going, hey, these, these, you know, my wives with all their cushions. Um, yeah. everyone, everyone. <laughs> Why do they call it a throw pillow? It's staying well, on the couch. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's a good bit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> it's sort of, so uh, you know, like people then, like, like, uh, yeah, so I just think it's sort of interesting that um, it's always gendered mm. and I, I'd like to sort of stir that pot up and, you know, because I understand men. Like a lot of my comedy is skewering, you know, the the toxic masculinity um, because I experience it a lot because I actually get along with guys because, you know, um you know, I don't have I don't have a lot of cushions. Right. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that is that is one of my favorite. Seinfeld has a thing where he's like, "Women need cotton balls. Men don't need cotton balls." I I love Seinfeld, by but the way. I know but men, is, yeah, but I know before. men who are really vain and need cotton balls. That's that's right. It, it's a more nuanced severing of of the human rainbow that you're asking for which i completely yeah. agree with let's I, you know i think it'll free a lot of women up and it'll free a lot of men up to just right. sort of like let's take the heat off gender yes and think about it in terms of your neurobiology that's right very more much more interesting because I, it's, it's the not- way you take the world in and put you know turn it around and take the world back out whereas gender is really gender and sexuality is a very you know people feel like they can just break that off of right. who they are, but the way you think and the way you process the world is just fundamental to who you are. Yeah. Do you think that's fundamental to your sex and your gender? 
Is that what you were saying or, or are you saying that's a No, thing? when people sort of think about you in terms of your sex and gender, they, I see. you know, and, and the way you sort of like, I feel like my, my um, autism is, is fundamental to who I am because it doesn't go away when someone's not looking at me. Like I right. still think, like I still think the way that I think, even though no one's looking at me and trying to understand who I am. Yeah, in the way that you think is maybe even it pre it's a precursor to your body, to your gender. It's it's even more intimate. Yeah, and people and you know and uh, it's a uh, people tend to then, you know, that's where the false science of eugenics comes into it. Mm. Because they, you know, the, the they presuppose that race and gender and sexuality then inform is informed like a defect. That's right. Um, I mean, whereas, it's not right. That's what eugenics is. <laughs> yeah, really, just absolutely. Yeah. It's dumb science. Yeah. And yeah. even like, even, yeah, it's just not actually science. Science is a bad way. It's just like it, people just invented. Well, they did. My, Val, my wife, Val, who does the Friday episodes with me, she pointed out she had had it tracked back to the moment in history when one group was trying to own another group. And in order to justify that, um, they had to come up with eugenics, basically. Because in order to own another group, you have to consider yourself superior, and yeah. the measure of that is civilization. Right, right. Um, and you can't be like racism is by its very nature an uncivilized idea. Mm-hmm. So you have to invent a science in order to justify. Uh, masquerading as civility, of course, yeah. because it's science. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't that's... you can't put that past me. I'm the queen of masking. I guess, yeah. You can't mask a masker. Yeah. I love that line. You said, if you're in the minority, you don't matter. My wife is um, 10 years younger than I am. And she's been very helpful in helping me see the, the privilege and the, and the unseen perspective of even jokes that maybe not my jokes, but some of my jokes, some of my perspectives are just coming from a place of assumed normality and when you said that in your special, it was very powerful to me. I, I'm, I'm tingly in the cheeks just thinking about it. I wonder if you could talk about it. I, I, when I go to see shows, and when I did uh, 10 years ago, I remember starting to pick up on it. I was like, there's just an undercurrent of uh, women are inferior, or there's just an undercurrent of gays are inferior, or blacks are inferior, or Mexicans, uh, Latinx people, whatever it might be. And it was fascinating, like you, as a noticer of patterns. I'm like, where's the line? This is a regular audience. Nobody's here to see any comedian. They're just watching a handful of comedians. And seeing where this random group of 300 people would put the line, and it was pretty generous in the favor of it's normal to be straight, it's normal to be white, it's normal to be male. Because the line's not drawn by the audience. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Talk about that. The line's drawn by culture. Like no individual gets to decide stuff. Like in a, in a you know, like so the when people, and I was guilty of this, you know, if you close your eyes and think of a doctor, close your eyes, think of a comedian, basically it's a doctor, you take his coat off, put him in jeans and a T-shirt. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just what you do and that's, that's because right. that's what we're given. And, you know, like the mother-in-law, the mother-in-law jokes, one that sort of bothered me for a long time because it's seen as if it's like 
a harmless truth. Mm-hmm. But if you dissect the mother-in-law joke, basically it's separating a daughter from her own family, which is essentially what marriage is mm-hmm. back in the day, not what it is now, but back in the day it's like you sever the woman from her own family mm-hmm. with a dowry hopefully. And and the mother-in-law doesn't get to have, you know, as soon as the mother-in-law inserts herself into her daughter's family, it's not cool. That's so, the, so interesting. It's like, why am I respecting you? You don't have yeah. money. You don't have power. I'm not related to you. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, that's where the, you know, like, and so the, you know, also you separate women from their own family. You separate their, their source of power. Um, so the, the oh, mother-in-law no. joke is like a, a really in a long line of patriarchal devices to make sure that women don't have inter- intergenerational power structures. Wow. That's challenging for me. I'm thinking of a joke I had where I said, I hate my girlfriend's parents and it's, it's okay. I'm not embarrassed. We can talk about it. Meaning I don't mind being the bad example. The joke was, what are we going to hang out? I'm having sex with your daughter. You know what I mean? Like you don't like me, don't pretend to like me, but I wonder, and I'm only pointing this out, not to, for the fun of falling on my own spear, but to say like, I didn't know but when I hear you say that, it makes sense. I'm like, let's get your family out of here because you're with me now, right? I mean, isn't that what's happening? But there's also an intersection there about the the uh, sexuality of a, of a daughter. Mm-hmm. So your presence, therefore, um, makes parents confront that. And that's mm-hmm. another thing. Mm. It's like well, girls, young women aren't supposed to have sexuality. That's you're absolutely right. The big shocking line of that joke. I didn't say having sex. I said, I'm fucking your daughter. You should want to hit me with a shovel. Yeah. Okay. Why? That's why exactly should they right. want to do that? Like, why wouldn't That's they ex- want their, their, their daughter to have a healthy sex life? I am. I'm there now. This special was yeah. quite a while ago. Yeah. No, it's fine. It's like, oh, I, I, I didn't mean to sound defensive. I'm just saying I see it now. I get yeah. that with we have a daughter now. And it's funny, I catch myself having thoughts that I have never seen really reflected on TV, which is you'll be holding your baby and you're like, she'll have sex one day, right? Because that's the old, it's like, don't think the thing. And then I go, yeah, I hope she loves it. I hope she knows wonderful sexual freedom and beauty and passion and joy and bliss. I know that's weird to say about my own daughter, but like. Well, you know, if you, you, you know, you don't get like, it, it's, if you frame it as like you don't own a human, then that's kind of healthy. Um, that, right. As long as you don't get involved yourself, you're fine. Um, <laughs> but there's, that was never modeled for me to be like, yeah, I hope my daughter does. It was always, she better, she better be home by eight, you know. Well, I, I've always been really fascinated by story and you know why stories sort of overwhelm people before facts do Mm. um and Mm. i spent a lot of time on the story of adam and eve uh and in both both nanette and douglas uh it was there it was part of the shows and both times it sort of like had to be pulled out for various reasons it didn't quite work but a bit had a long-held fascination with the story of Adam and Eve and why it has such a 
you know, a big influence on so many different sorts of people and how, you know, you know, in, in the in the world of homophobia, it's Adam and Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Um, mm. I've Adam often. And Eve. It's Madam and Eve, if you <laughs> um, But it's, you know, for my mind, it's like it's a story that helps, is, I, I think, is supposed to help people understand the, the navigation and the trauma of leaving childhood mm. and becoming an adult. And that's the sort of, you know, and, and that story and the way we tell it to each other, particularly in the, you know, in religious religious circles, as we'll call them, it's it's to shame the women mm. more so than the men. And so that's part of that. It's just like women are supposed to feel more shame than men around that leaving of childhood Eden. That's right. Even I remember the realization I was a teenager and I was like, oh, Adam's apple. That's like, I, I could be wrong. This is my child. It didn't logic. go all the way down. It didn't go all the way down. He didn't swallow it. Yeah. Like she swallowed it. She fell yeah. for it, the uh, the snake. Um, but I, I'm completely with you. Yeah, I, I just then go, Adam, typical man, didn't chew his food. He's an idiot. <laughs> chew your food. He's more of a Hoover. He he just yeah. sucks it down. Yeah, no, I I think that's what the biblical authors were were getting yeah. at. Yeah. I I want to go back to something you said earlier about trauma. Very interesting subject. We talk about trauma a lot on this podcast. Is comedy trauma? I mean, don't you feel like the mo- I feel like the most trauma I experienced was induced by comedy in the first 10 years. <laughs> um, no, I don't I don't see comedy as trauma. How do you how do you I think well, I'm not sure I understand you. I think I'm going off of remember we were saying fame as a type of trauma. So I'm using a, a, a lowercase t. I'm not, I'm not putting it up there with assaults or anything like that. Oh no, I'm no, just, no, no. I'm not, I'm not get that, but I just don't I don't actually understand how I'm talking about the the humiliation and the pain. It reminds me of you talking about people on the spectrum that are treading water, that are learned that yeah. they seem to be functioning, but really they're like a duck with the feet underwater. Similarly, yeah. you see an open micer in the first ten years. They might seem okay, but there's a lot to digest. Whether or not yeah, we call also, it trauma, maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, look, I I don't like trauma so there was no way I'd experienced some you know like you know just kind of um quite a broad spectrum of trauma accumulative PTSD and Mm. and bits and bobs before I even started comedy and Mm -hmm. I I don't say it as any point of pride or anything but just as I know it to be the truth I would not be a comedian if I'd had had to do it through the open mic channels um, mm. because mm. it just seemed absurd. It just seemed like why would you do that? You're just talking to a bunch of, you know, and I did a few gigs in those places and it just seemed like the audiences were disrespectful. The 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 comedy was most often quite hostile. Oh, yeah, like, it was the worst. You know, it was like, I've, you know, I've never seen so many rape jokes back to back as I did it in an open mic night. So yeah. I was like, well, this isn't the world for me. So like, you, you didn't do it. I don't participate. No, I didn't, I just didn't do it. I didn't have time to do it. But in Australia, we have a different sort of model of stand up than in, a, in, in the U S and, and what uh, is dr- drives that the most, I believe is the culture around the Melbourne international comedy festival. 
um, which is an open festival, much like the Edinburgh Fringe, but it's, you know, Edinburgh Fringe is open to all kinds of art forms, whereas, you know, the Melbourne Comedy Festival is a similar model, but it's um, comedy. And so you're encouraged to just put on an hour show. So you don't fight amongst, you don't fight the same audience with other comics. You fight for an audience into a you know bunch of people who come down going, we're going to buy a ticket to a show. So then... How did you prepare that show? Forgive my naive question. Well, I, I started small. Like I, they run a competition called Raw Comedy where they're looking for... So I, I got my start in the Raw Comedy Comedy... The Raw Comedy Festival... Uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival um, New Talent Search. Um, and I, I won that. And then they did another thing for the, in the next festival where they put a whole bunch of new comics into like a, um, you know, a, a lineup show. Yeah. Uh, and I did really well there. And then someone said, hey, I'll, I want to um, support you to do an hour-long show. Uh, it was another comic, Adam Hills, he's Australian, um, and he said, here's some, I'm going to produce your first hour-long show in the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So pretty much I was, my experience of it, although I'm, you know, was comics supporting other comics, yeah, that I did Melbourne, and that was my takeaway from the scene. Um, not everybody was from Australia, but just the no. European scene. David O'Doherty and I yeah. became quite close. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I just couldn't. Nanette felt that way to me. Maybe that's why I. I'd like to think it's just because I'm an evolved person that's seen one person shows that's seen a variety of different types of comedy. No, that's but how I you, learned how to write. What you did reminded me of the shows that I would see in Melbourne. Yeah, and I, and I mean that in a good way, of course. Yeah, well, it's just the way, you know, like, it's long-form comedy. Like I don't build an hour-long show out of five-minute sets that work. I take right. it as a, as a, and I, I, I'm agnostic as to which is better. I don't believe that's even a conversation worth having. They're just two different forms. It's just like yeah. what's better, a marathon or a sprint? It depends on who's chasing you. <laughs> and so it's... <laughs> So it's <laughs> they're, just, they're just different, you know. So yeah. I, the way I write a, a show is is different, I think, to a lot of US comics because I'm taking it as a as a whole. I'm not going taking you know you know a 20 minute set and going here's my best 15 minutes from that and building right. off right. that. Right. You know? um, well, you can see it in the structure. You can see it in the themes. You sort of remind me of Chris Rock and Berbiglia, the way that you'll reestablish a theme over and over, say a key line, a touchstone. And those are things you get over a long form show that I would say, if I was going to stereotype American comedy, you're not going to see that as much, even though Chris Rock, of course, is American, but that has that hour yeah, I don't, long. I don't think it's particularly neurotypical. To, to do that? I, I don't think Chris Rock is. Oh, Chris Rock. 100% neurotypical. I mean, I feel like I'm not qualified maybe to diagnose, but when I go to the cellar or the comedy store, I'm like, it's one of the reasons, to be honest, I was curious if I was, because I'm looking around and I'm like, if this is who I get on with, you know what I mean? I was like, this is who I feel the most comfortable with. I was like, I think we're an interesting group, just maybe not the mm. most neurotypical group. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there's a there's a part of that um, problem in US comedy culture is that there there seems to be a 
you have the ability to believe that you're doing it on your own because you're separated from the 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 structures. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in the uh, in Melbourne, like to to participate in the comedy festival, you have to rely on people to help you get a show up. Yeah. Or you do it on you have to hustle on your own, or you have so you're kind of aware of the underpinnings of the things that you cannot do in order to make a comedy show work. Yeah, like I, I got in America. You can just go. I just get on stage and do my thing, and I'm magical. I'm a magical yeah. piece that make you know. I do it all on my own. It's like it's bullshit. Yeah. Like, so you need uh, people with different skill sets to you in order mm. to like, like it. It seems like it's the most individualist art, art form. And so I agree. But it's not. Nothing is. You don't get to do comedy without a lot of other people with a lot of other skill sets that you don't have. Hmm. It, I just, it made me write a street joke. I was like, Hannah, what did the LA comedian who went before you think of your set? Um, he went home. <laughs> I did. I did too. Um, I, did too. I bet you would have gotten it. I should have just given you a longer pause. You definitely would have gotten something. Well, I think as a pause, I'm like, I can't imagine. A, like he'd be chatting at the back, I think, was where my mind was going. Yes, oh, I did yeah. the Montreal Comedy Festival. He's in his Tesla. Um, <laughs> he's kind of a next gig. Yeah, that's Good on him. It. He's hustling. Um, You're right. I, I, I did have a guy who followed me who just did a whole set about how much he hated Nanette. Oh, my God, uh, really? Yeah, um, which is, it was actually fine because it was so clear he was unstable, like I destabilized his worldview to such an effect that it was just like, dude, wow. Whoa. Um, I, I, there's a weird bullying that can happen in stand-up. I'll never forget I was doing a show and the first comedian, I, I can't remember, it might have been a girl and then the second guy went on stage and he just went, he wiped his brow and went, whoa. And even that, I mean, this is what I talk about when I'm saying for me, starting in comedy, I'm going to use the word traumatic. It was difficult for me it, as sort of like a, a sweeter, more sensitive person. I was like, you just fucking sold her out. I'm standing next to her. It's that's a, that's a heavy thing to process. It's um, it's the competitiveness of it yeah, that I find yeah. like that's that's what people see it as is like who has the best joke a conversation isn't a conversation it's a topper on topper of a topper of an on top of a topper um <laughs> and which is just the most as someone who observes conversation they are dull that is to watch comedians speak to each other is dull yeah um if I that's you. you know if there's in that in that context, and so you know, one of the biggest forms of stand up, you know, is is the roast, and I hate roasts. Mm. Like, I mean, I like the food, Mm-mm. but <laughs> <laughs> like, I just if the point of opening your mouth is to be cruel, yeah. I just don't want anything to do with it. Like, it just feels awful, and like, I'm not saying it shouldn't happen, but surely there's other. There's, there's no, I understand. I I have been known to enjoy a roast, and I've known to do a roast and backstage everyone's crying. So you you are not without a point. <laughs> I mean that that needs to be reckoned with. The good side of it, I think, 
I like being roasted to, to give you, uh, well, you know, then you, you, you're like, you're in the in group. If you're being roasted, yeah, and you can survive being roasted. But I'm not, like, I've never been on the in group. Yeah. I mean, but, see, that's it again. Yeah, that's to. the privilege. That's, that's. I don't want to. Yeah, I hear you. So, hear you know, that. what you're witnessing is like bullying. Yeah. I mean, you just helped me realize this is the moment I'm realizing, like, of course you love being roasted. What is there? All I can do is win by laughing. If you make fun of my divorce, for example, and I laugh, I just win. But if I roast somebody who's actually, as you say, doesn't fit in, um, it's not as fun, right? Is that, we agree? Yeah, like, I mean, you know, it's just basically an excuse to... uh, Externalized prejudice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's very, very, very interesting. You use the word um, fitting in. You say that you uh, feel incorrect, which was one of the most emotional parts of the show um, for me. I'm wondering how you're getting on with that now. And, and if you have anything to say to people who clearly relate to you, um, even if their life is different, but they relate to the feeling of not fitting in. They, they relate to the feeling of being incorrect. And as you mature and, and grow wiser, what, what do we say to people that feel that way? How do we, how do we, do we want to fit in? <laughs> do we want to feel correct? I think, you know, it, uh, the older I get, the more I understand that it's a, um... It's a conversation. Fitting in is always a conversation. You you don't fit in truly unless you're yourself. Like, and that's such a, a weird way of like, what is yourself? It's basically it's a way of being in the world that doesn't feel exhausting. Hmm. Like if if in order to fit in, you're exhausted. That's not that's fitting not in. You. Yeah, that's not you either. That's a bad story you're telling. Yeah, and so like I think, but it's a battle, and I. I think I think older people should be much kinder to younger people. Like I think mm. that's just the first thing because we're always like when you, it's all you're trying to do is to find that balance between who who are you, who you want to be, how how does the world not hate you? Mm. Um, and I just don't think older people should pile on as, as young people are trying to work that out. Like I think it's one of the laziest forms of comedy as older people going, oh, when I was young, it's like, yeah, and look what the world is now you're old. You fucked it up. Shut up. <laughs> Do you think people lose touch with what it's like to be young? I, I feel like that's a pretty Yeah, it's particularly thing. successful people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit more grace from the older people. Has there been yeah. anything that's helped you? Obvi- I, f- I have to think that your expression on stage has helped you know yourself and feel more comfortable in your body. How are you doing with that shame? I I was raised religious, so I I can't, I'm not even trying to compete. So please don't hear it that way. But I'm like, (laughs) I feel shame over being just sexual. It doesn't matter what it is. Straight gay. Look, I was raised by a lapsed Catholic, which is Mm. pretty much all the guilt, none of the holidays. So I kind of of get it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the shame kind of, uh, that I experience comes from all sorts of areas. It's not just my sexuality. It's my body type. Like, you know, I don't ever talk about my body on stage now. Mm. Um, 
like that is I draw a hard line there. Um, uh, Why? Because it's just an open open season on women's bodies. Mm. So it's not just it's not just you. It's just the. I refuse to make a joke about my body because yeah. they've all been written, and none of them are, mm. none of them have, none of those jokes about women's bodies give any room for women to experience their own body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't escape the culture you're brought up in. You can't escape the fact that people do judge women. So you know, I you know, and I I, I get a lot of hostility about my my how I look. Mm. Um, and why that's a reason I shouldn't speak. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, so sometimes that affects me because I was, you know, that's part of how I was raised, you know, that's part of the cruelty I experienced when I was growing up, that my body was wrong and that mm. I was wrong in my body. Um, so if there's any trolls out there listening, you do know, you do know the way to cut me. There yeah. it is. But also I have the tools now that I'm older to to understand what that is and I'll just take a nap and get over it. So, you know, mm. it's now a paper cut. Um, but it's uh, I am a really, really, really private person and so I struggle with not being that anymore. And I know I put it all out there, but um, so, you know, it's it's give and take, but the sense of ownership that people have over you, the sense of ownership about your ideas, what you should and shouldn't say. Um, and there's also a limit to artistic growth that comes with sort of a touchstone success like Nanette was. They're like, well, you are this person now. So, you, you know, uh, you know, they want to trip you up with your own work, which is odd. And mm. sometimes, you you know, I, I think I, to a certain extent I'm frozen in time to the person that was the person that wrote and did Nanette. But you don't get to have that experience of Nanette and not change as a person. Hmm. That's very fair. I mean, what, what do we expect you not to change after something yeah, like, like that? Yeah, like that was a profound, it was yeah. extreme. Like it's yeah. extreme. What I, what I experienced with that was extreme and mm. extremely just destabilizing. Well, you even talk about it in Nanette, um, where someone says not enough lesbian content, <laughs> which I, which, you know, uh, I've seen other comedians get, it's like, you're not doing enough of what you did. And it's like, but you know, you're not, you're a human being and you're evolving and you're changing. Do you feel yeah. that way facing another special? Is there, if that's going to be a thing? Uh, what comforts me when anything I do now is that I was so ready to fail with Nanette, that that's how I'm going to approach everything I do. I love that. And it's not like I'll say whatever I want to say. Like I take great care of what I'm putting out in the world because I, I actually don't think that words are harmless, you know. Mm. Um, but on the same hand, it's just like if it, you know, I'm going to take risks. Yeah. Like, I think, I think it's, it's, it's kind of feels, yeah, important to me to sort of keep evolving. And also, like, if I, if, if I fail, like, I just, like, I had nothing. Like, I came from absolutely nothing, homelessness and no options. I've made mm. enough of a mark, you know, and made en- turned enough coin to live, if I live frugally enough and my vegetables grow each season, I'll be right. <laughs> you know, like, I'll be right. 
Like in comparison to what my life was before in it, I'll just be right. Even if yeah. like nothing, everything I touch now turns to absolute shit and I'm forever forgotten and, you know, in one generation time means nothing and it just bet I will be fine. Mm. And that's power. I mean, yeah. empowering. Yeah. And I believe, I mean, we've seen it. I mean, that is such a beautiful lesson for any artist. It's certainly beautiful for me that you were ready to fail, expecting to fail. There's just something about those dark nights of the soul where you're just like, fuck it. People have to know. I have to say it. And that was one of your touchstones. I I have to tell my story. And isn't it so funny that that ends up being the most successful thing when you stopped giving a fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And I think everyone has to find that, that on their own. Like I think that there's a, there's a, there's a danger in, you know, saying, well, I have to have this moment in order to have success. Like I just think people find success in their own own ways and there's so many different ways to, to, you know, skin the comedy cat. Um, But I, you know, they say that, you know, it takes 10 years of comedy to find your voice. And I always kind of rubbish that because I found my voice as soon as I was on stage. Like I felt like I had this sort of ability and a comfort in how I spoke on stage, even though it did evolve. I always felt like I was, but then sure enough, 10 years in, I wrote Nanette and I'm like, oh yeah, I get that now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I remember feeling the same way. I was like, what are you talking about? This is me. Yeah. You think everything you do for the first decade just doesn't count. It doesn't uh, feel that way. But it goes in. That's how it is. It goes in. in. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, like I have a, I have such a respect for the craft of comedy. Like I, I, you know, I don't hate comedy as much as people would like me to like to think I do. Like I just mm. think it, it could broaden. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a wider church. Um, like I think it's really interesting. The 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 policing of the joke. Mm. Tell me. Um, you you know like you know. In order to be comedy, the la- the laugh has to happen last, and I don't necessarily describe subscribe to that. Like, mm. like as long as I think there's genuine laughter on the on as part of the the journey, I think I think you get to. Yeah, you know, you know it's funny. Mike Birbiglia is one of my best friends. We talk almost every day, and I one time I don't know why. We're like, what do people say? He was like, I'll t-, he was like, I'll tell you what people say about you if you tell them what they say about me. And we did it. And what I said that they said was, he knows this. I was like, people think you're like an NPR one man show kind of thing for the very same reason. Because Mikey likes to go small and he likes to go big and he doesn't necessarily do the 15 things in a row callback, big flourish closer, he might end on like the new one ends with through my child's eyes, which isn't even a laugh line. It's just a, you know, it's like a, it's a realization. So you're not alone in that. So that's what you mean by the policing. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah. So it's like, you don't get to participate because, and it's really weird in that it's like, people is like, you know, we're the last bastions of free speech, but you can't say it like that. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about, you hypocrite? 
That's Dumbass. really funny. You know, I, I'm only saying this just so you know, I, I don't think you think you're alone, but I'm with you. The The discomfort that I've felt, I mean, coming up in the clubs in the early 2000s, and it was because I was religious that I was a little bit more sensitive to it. But I also was just, you know, <laughs> not, I, I, I would see stuff that would make me go like, what the fuck is this? What is happening right now? Anywhere else, that would be hate speech. And this was a not very woke person in 2003 in Chicago. It's not like I had my doctorate in like sensitivity, sensitivity, but I was still going like, this guy just brought a bachelorette on stage and mime humped her. Like you don't have to be, you know, a Nobel Peace Prize winner to see that like, what is going on with comedy? So when you say a broader church, I mean, I'm with you. Yeah, it's hard to break up a culture when you're, in it like and you know you can't blame almost can't you know like it just needs such a shake-up because it's like how can you do you know half of the people doing that probably don't like doing it but they think that's what you have to do Mm. and so then you're able to just go well it's just hey get the job done it's harmless because other people are doing it like it you know I don't see like the fact that Donald Trump can get laughs at a rally means that comedy's easy. Mm. <laughs> That's so true. Like That's comedy's not true. hard. Like you get yeah. a crowd baying after the same blood you want to, anything. Like mm. it's not actually. Well, that's my biggest problem with comedy is just getting people to agree with things that everyone agrees with. You know what I mean? Like, And not everybody, but I really mean just like the broadest, isn't it great? to eat a pizza, you know what I mean? And he does that with his own bevy of selections. Isn't it? Yeah. Wait, I mean, he would never say that because that's the sort of thing Hillary did, isn't it? Eat a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to run out of time, and I know we only have 90 minutes, and I wanted to ask you, we always talk about religion. You talked about your mother being a lapsed Catholic. But I want you to just answer the question, however, is most interesting to you, how you were raised and maybe where you are now, not even from a religious sense, but just like we're alive. I'm talking to you and it's tomorrow in Melbourne through the internet. And as you said, you are a consciousness in your body. It thinks this way. I'm a consciousness in this body. It thinks that way. We're both we were both woken up on an intergalactic mystery that no one really understands. And we're hurling through space. How does Hannah Gatsby even attempt to experience that process that frame it? Do you have an understanding of spirituality or wonder or whatever you got? Um, I, I've always had a childlike approach to things which is like oh I'll never know all the things Mm. oh Mm. there's so many questions I love a question and I used to frustrate teachers at school because I'd turn an answer into a question (laughs) (laughs) reverse Um, jeopardy yeah um (laughs) I study Taoism that's how I get through life like I find because it's just one text and then you just you know it's a deep deep dive Mm. It, it, it it it's a text that sort of 
allows, you know, ideas to spring forth. And as you mature, your ideas around the text can change, but it, it really is one that avoids dogma, which mm-hmm. appeals to me because, you know, something that's written way back in the day can't survive under the pressure of dogma. Like I think dogma mm. is what, what kills spirituality. Mm. Um, dogma is now, that's what I call religion. It's like those compilation CDs. Like it, it might be popular for a time, but after a while we're like, what was Chumbawamba? I, I don't understand. <laughs> and like when I read the Tao Te Ching, I'm like, this, this is such a cliche, but it is reading me. I know that's embarrassing. It's like this trick where it pushes through me and it makes me, mirror back something that I didn't know I believed or saw or, or it gets me quiet, which is, which is way better than any of that. Yeah. And because there's so many different translations, it it sort of appeals to my pattern mind, you know, Mm. like I can't speak the original language and no one really can now. Like Mm. it's not, um, you know, I I take solace in the fact that Chinese scholars also struggle with the text. Mm. but, uh, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, there's, there's enough room for me in that in that text and there's also enough room for me not to exist at all, which is also a, I find I've never searched for meaning of me. Like it's always made sense that we live and then we die and the mystery of what happens after we die seems like an absurd one. Mm. Uh, I think most religions use it as a way of, making people behave better Carrot and i'm like stick. well that's it that's the way of the toddler i think mm. i'm a bit more grown up than that this is like mm. how about i just be a kind person mm. because that's right <laughs> i love that i love that um how about i not hurt things and other people because that's just not right mm. uh um so yeah that's that's sort of how and i i you know you know, I, I find it, a, and I have one particular audio version of it, which I find incredibly com- comforting to listen oh, to. Oh, really? Which one is that? Jacob Needleman. Jacob Needleman. Jacob. Have you, he just did this podcast. Stephen Mitchell has a beautiful uh, translation and it, it, he's a Zen Buddhist. So he like sort of riffed on some of the verses, meaning it's not a strict translation and even tells you that, but the essence of it is carried through. So. Yeah, because really I'm a little skeptical of the Buddhist. Oh, really? Yeah. Tell me why. Oh, well, I'm sort of I, I I sway toward the Taoist, which is like less prescriptive. I I I think I know what you mean. Is it, what is it in particular that sort of ruffles your feathers or doesn't ruffle? Probably your feathers? Richard Gear. Just probably Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted for the longest time, Hannah, to do a bit about how Richard Gere movies in the 90s. Do you remember when cool was cool? Like, that's Richard Gere in the 90s. I don't, it wasn't actually cool, but like wearing a sun, sunglasses on the tip of your nose, leaning on a Corvette in a trench coat and being like, hey, get in the car. That's Richard Gere in the 90s, and it wasn't ironic. That's just that's, when cool was cool. <laughs> do you know what that is? That is a writer's room full of people on the spectrum. That is so fucking funny. That is hilarious. What is cool? I don't know. Give him a trench coat. <laughs> of course. What a slam dunk. I love that. Well, I love I love that answer. I don't think we have to labor this. I've enjoyed this. You're a great guest, so you just 
gave and gave and gave. So I'll ask you the final question, which is always, can you think of a time in your life that you laughed very, very, very hard? It doesn't have to be a great story. Maybe you were a kid. Maybe it was this weekend. Maybe you tripped. Uh, maybe you were tripping. <laughs> um, I've got um I've been writing down things that I've said that um, are funny yes. to me. Like, and I've shared them with other people and then I've written down the thing that makes people laugh. Please. Um, and so I'll just read you a few of those. How about that? I would love that. Are you kidding? I'm honoured. Um, I'm hungry. Do you see any food? No. I'm going to eat it. I mean, I ate it. I mean, I'm hungry. <laughs> do you see any food is the most literal i'm hungry do you see any food <laughs> no because i'm gonna eat it no i ate it but i'm hungry the other one artichokes are too much work and i don't understand where the food is don't ask me to suck a fat leaf and call it a vegetable that wasn't my line but it made me laugh yes. so much yes it's like 90 um, percent nothing <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're, they're just those little conversation. Yes. Um, here's a conversation I had. Um, it was a while well, doing a crossword with a friend on on um, on the Zoom. Yes. And I said a clue. This is the clue. What's hot? And that person answered, pickles. <laughs> and I said, are you drunk? And they said, in my defence, I was thinking about hot as in spicy and I pictured a sausage. <laughs> and I said, sorry, what? And she said, same shape. I got it before she explained it. I was there on the shape and this is, uh, I mean, we're vibing now. <laughs> yeah, so it's those little things. I've been collecting those little things because they're the, they're the little things that, you know, they really make me laugh. I love In my that. toes. I just want to, as a fan, is there going to be another special, do you think? Well, it's, it's really what I do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like when, I, when Nanette, the, Nanette hit and everyone wanted a piece of me and everyone goes, you know, are you going to do your TV show? And I'm like, that seems like a recipe for narcissism. Um, for what? And they're like, <laughs> you know, have, having your own show about yourself called after yourself, directed by you and show run by you, <laughs> recipe for narcissism. And Narci- Narcissism? Yeah. There's, yes. a, there's enough proof on the table. <laughs> I think I can contribute to that proof. It, it is an ego trip for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, and, and also like that's a, to someone on this, this place on the spectrum that I am, it seems overwhelming first up. Yeah. So I sat down with my manager and it's like, well, where do we want to go? What, what is my ideal career? And I'm like, Laurie Anderson. Mm. You don't have like to do. Yeah. She just does her thing. Yeah. And it's like, she's batshit and just does a thing. She, you know, and she just says, I want to do this thing now. I want to make a film now. And she always yeah. does a live shows. Yeah. Good for you. I but mean, that's... talk about people doing things for thing for reasons that are other people's reasons, right? We're either saying stupid shit because it's part of the culture that we're not even aware of, or we're living someone else's dream. So I'm just so happy that you're wise enough to go, wait, 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 wait. 
what actually do I want to do? Not what could I do, but what do I want to do? I don't know if it's wise enough, but I'm tired enough. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. Like if I had got the success when I was younger, I would have had the energy to what you know, yeah. spend it otherwise. But I don't have a lot left. It's get the Great Gatsby. I mean, that's what it would have been on NBC. I'm yeah. sorry, I, I get WhatsApp Holmes a lot. I'm sure you get Great Gatsby, <laughs> but uh, what can we do? Yours you is get WhatsApp Holmes. My last name is Holmes. Yeah, no, but what's the reference? Oh, uh, you haven't heard that? Instead of homeboy, homie, you'd say Holmes. Oh, what's a, oh? See, I would have gone elementary. But that's the other character. Yes. That is when I... Uh, that's Watson. When I'm, it's elementary. Yeah, you're right. No shit, Sherlock. When I make a oh, dinner yeah. reservation, I'll say Holmes like Sherlock. And then they laugh and I go, that's my mother, which, which I think is fun. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Hannah, I do want to end on a sincere note and say you really are tremendous. I'm so grateful for what you're putting out there because it's healing, it's connecting, and it's putting more love into the world. So... I hope you feel, well, I feel good loving you. I don't, I, it doesn't matter how you Happy feel. Happy to help. Happy yeah. to help. <laughs> Would you end, uh, we have the guests say the catchphrase. It's just a button for the episode. The catchphrase is keep it crispy and then we'll be done. Keep it crispy. <laughs> keep it crispy. Is that what it is? Keep it crispy? Yes. Or Corpus Christi? Corpus Christi. That's it. Corpus Christi. Keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. It's keep it crispy in Corpus Christi. Ah, keep it, keep it crispy. (laughs) Pickle. So confused. Pickle sausage. (laughs) (laughs) You did it though. You said keep it crispy, so it counts. Keep it crispy. Thank you. Keep it crispy. Come on. Come on. Now we're pleading. I like that. Come on. Come on. Keep it crispy. Come on. Come on. Kind of a Little League coach vibe. I like that too. Come on, guys. Keep it crispy. Come on. Keep it crispy. I hope we get to meet in real life someday, Hannah. That'd Um, be nice. Thank you for doing this. It was a delight. Pleasure. Pleasure. Okay. Keep it crispy. You keep it crispy. Done. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. So nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too.